We've come to that portion of our service where we open up God's Word, and if you have your copy of God's Word, I encourage you to open up to the, the book of Isaiah, and we're in chapter 22. You know, there are days in your life, there are certain days that just stick in your mind. Maybe better said, there are moments. There are moments that occur and, and things happen and you can't forget. I've spoken to people who were alive when they heard the news of Pearl Harbor on December 7th and how that stuck in their minds. Others who were old enough to remember when Kennedy was assassinated, they remember exactly where they were. They remember exactly who they were with. They remember exactly what they were doing. And for my generation and others, it's 9-11. I could tell you exactly where I was when I heard. I could tell you who was there. I could tell you what I was doing. I could tell you what I did next. And I can even recall conversations with family members. I could describe feelings. I could describe questions and fears and a whole range of other memories. One of the results, though, after 9-11 was there was a coming together for a brief period. I don't know if you remember, if you were alive and you were, could remember those times, but right after 9-11, the churches were packed. For several weeks, right after 9-11, people were flooding the churches. They were seeking something. They, they were seeking answers, and they came to church. But that didn't last long. Within a few weeks, the attendance numbers were back to pre-9-11 numbers. They, reformed, they returned to their former ways like a dog returning to its vomit. And people wanted someone to blame. They wanted vengeance. But there was no national soul searching. And about a decade after 9-11, people would celebrate the death of the 9-11 architect but by that time, the other trivialities of life had overcome their thinking, and it was really like it had never happened. Even had the motto, never forget. We were to never forget the people who died. We were to never forget the heroes who did amazing things on that day, many giving their lives. And in today's passage, we're going to see a similar example of a national event in Jerusalem, in Judah, a national crisis in the kingdom of Judah. It'll come and go, and the people will seemingly be unaffected by it. In Jerusalem, there'll be no national soul-searching, no internal examination, no repentance for sure. And Judah, like Israel to the north, had become like other nations, and they were no longer seeking the Lord. So today we're coming to the two, the final two oracles in this list of 10 oracles that we see in chapters 13 through 23. And again, we're sitting at the feet of the ancient sages to learn wisdom, to learn how we should live in our own days. This is scripture given to us by God for our benefit and how we should live. 
the prophet Isaiah carried a burden, an oracle, and he was obligated to share it with people. And the oracles are presented in, in really two sets of five, beginning in chapter 13. It begins with Babylon, moves to Philistia, Philistia, to Moab, to Damascus and Israel and Ethiopia, and then to Egypt. Then the list starts over again with Babylon, then Edom called Duma and Arabia. And today we get to the last two, Jerusalem and Tyre. Now each of the five lists begins with Babylon and each set ends with, uh, doesn't end, but the, the fourth one is God's chosen nation, Israel and Judah in this. And then, surprisingly, this lists each end with people eventually turning to Yahweh. So they're designed to liberate people of Judah from idolatry and from fear. They demonstrate that God is sovereign over all the nations. We can't miss that in these oracles. God is sovereign. He's not only, not only does he have a plan for all the nations, but he's able to execute that plan flawlessly. And God will also crush nations that oppose him, which is still true today. And God will deliver Israel from the wicked schemes of the nations. And finally, out of all the nations, God will save his elect who will turn from their idolatry and they will worship the God of Israel. So there is no need for fear. There's no need for compromise. And in this case, Judah should stay the course and trust Yahweh. So chapter 22 kind of falls neatly into two parts. If you heard Charles reading, the first part is about Jerusalem, and I titled this as, as Jerusalem's Foolishly Rejoicing. But then it goes from the nation, from the national events, what's going on, and it gets, gets personal. It talks about a guy named Shebna, and then his replacement. In chapter 23, when it talks about Tyre, it first talks about the lament of the fall of Tyre, then an explanation of God's plan, and then finally a restoration. And in these two chapters, we're going to receive some great counsel through example of how we should not live our lives. You see, we should always trust Yahweh, always trust God alone. And in these two chapters, we see some examples of people putting their trust in the wrong places. We've seen that before, by the way. But here are the three things for which we must not place our trust. The first one is do not trust in material preparation and specifically military preparation. So don't trust in your own abilities to prepare. Number two, do not trust in fallen people. We trust in God alone. There are good men and women out there, but our trust should be reserved for God alone. And then we do not trust in prosperity. And we will see that in chapter 23. God is sovereign over all the nations and his plan will come to pass. So before we get into this chapter 22, I need to do a little background again of just the history that was going on and who all the players were and, and to help this make sense. You see, Isaiah prophesied in the 8th century BC from approximately 740 BC to 700, just round numbers, keeping it simple. And he was in Jerusalem. Now, beginning about 740 BC, a dominant world power rose, and it was Assyria. 
So Assyria is northeast of, of Israel, and it, it grows in power, but it doesn't just grow in power. It grows a war machine. And they were good, and they were powerful, and they were cruel, and they were savage. And there was a king that rose up. His name was tiglath Pileser the third, and he created this war machine. And he was cruel to defeated foes. So many people would choose to just capitulate instead of be defeated. You see, he had a foreign policy. Assyria had a foreign policy. And the foreign policy was simple. When we come to your land, you've got two choices. You can either capitulate and then you're going to pay a bunch of taxes to us and you're going to pay us tribute and then we'll let you live. Or we can go to battle. And if we go to battle, we will crush you. And if we crush you, we're going to take anybody who survives and we're going to take you out of the land and we're going to take you to other lands and we're going to disperse you and we're going to bring people from other lands into your land. Why? They don't want any ethnic nationalism. They don't want people joining together. It's what God did at the Tower of Babel. He, he separated them by language. But now here what they're doing is they're separating them by ethnicity. They don't want them banding together. So they, they spread them across the kingdom. Now, in addition to that, there, there are two other things. You still have to pay taxes. That's always true of the foreign policy. But in this case, too, you must worship their gods. You can worship other gods, but you're going to worship their gods too. And what we will see that happens when we look at, at uh, the nation of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, they will be conquered by Assyria. And Assyria will take people away and they will bring others in. And we see what is called syncretism. In other words, it's just a melding of different religions, pagan religions, with some Judaism in there. And it isn't pure. It isn't true. It isn't right. And so Assyria is rising to power. And people are afraid. They're nervous. So Assyria first turns kind of to the south to Babylon. And they try to keep Babylon under control. And then they turn north to some neighbors who are also troublesome for them. But then their eyes look west. And there are several countries, several nations to the west. One is the northern kingdom of Israel. One is the kingdom of, of Syria. And the other is Judah. And so they decide that they are going to to attack that way. Now, the, the king of Israel at the time, he was pro-Assyrian. So he chose to pay him off instead of fight. So right around that time, he was paying him off. But a few years later and two kings later, a king named Pekah broke the treaty. And so now Israel was going to align themselves against Assyria. And Syria was lined against Assyria, two different nations. And so what they decided to do, and Jared has talked about this, Assyria is going to attack. So what uh, Syria and Israel want to do is get Judah to join them so that they can have three countries against one. Hopefully that makes sense to you. This is what they're trying to do. Three countries against one, but Judah doesn't want to join them. So in 735 BC, they come down and they decide they're going to attack Judah. So now you have two countries attacking Judah. And so what does Judah do? King Ahaz, he does something really foolish. He decides to pay off Assyria for protection against Syria and Israel. Assyria is the worst of them all. 
and he pays them off. And God even warns them. He says, they're, not gonna, they're gonna be trouble. They're not gonna be help to you. you. You've just invited trouble into the kingdom and that's what they got. And so Assyria would step in and they would save Jerusalem. And Jerusalem would be paying tribute then to Assyria. Eventually, Syria in 732 BC would be captured and conquered by Assyria. And then in 722 BC, BC, the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, was conquered by Assyria. And Judah still paying taxes and tribute. However, the drama doesn't end there. You see, in 715 BC, King Hezekiah ascends to the throne. He was a good king in Judah. He brought a lot of reforms and he severed relations with Assyria. In other words, I'm not paying you anymore. Now he knew that that would come to a head, that there would, something would happen. So they, he began making military preparations for an eventual combat with Assyria. And Assyria does come and lay siege and Hezekiah tries to buy him off with a little tribute. They take the tribute and they say, it doesn't matter, we're still attacking. And then he goes and, and goes before the Lord. And you can read about this in 2 Kings 18 and 2 Chronicles 28, 9 through 32. And God steps in and kills 185,000 Assyrians in the night. And they retreat. A, a little side note on this. When, when we're looking at, at prophets and the prophecy, it's often helpful to read the historical accounts like out of Kings and Chronicles, to understand what's going on. You see, the, the, the historical books, your Kings, your Chronicles, your Samuel, they explain what happened. They give us kind of, in a sports analogy, it'd be like the play-by-play -play analysis. They're telling you who's up to bat. They're telling you who's pitching. They might even tell you what kind of pitch was being thrown, how many people are on base, how many outs there are. When you get to the prophets, though, Continuing that sports analogy, they're not doing play-by-play, -play, but they're explaining the game to you. They're explaining the rules. They're explaining to you this batter can't hit a curveball, so expect to have curveballs thrown. Now, if you're just reading the prophets without that background and you're reading about some guy that can't hit a curveball, you may not understand why. And so you read the histories. You understand what's going on in the world. Then when you pick up the prophets and you read them, you understand the why behind the what. And so we just covered the what. That's what happened. But now we need to understand the why. And that's what the prophet Isaiah will give to us. He will tell us why these things were occurring. So chapter 22 begins with that familiar phrase, the oracle concerning We've now stepped into this new section. You can see it there at the beginning of chapter 22. Now, the original hearer of this prophecy may have been waiting to see who was next. Remember, this is a prophecy to the kingdom of Judah, to the people of Jerusalem. And these are oracles of judgment against these nations. So if you're, if you're a Hebrew person, you're in Jerusalem, and you hear Isaiah start in chapter 13, and he says, hey, we got something against Babylon. You'd be like, yeah, God. Go get them. They're definitely bad guys. And then he goes through the list and he keeps going down. And he says, okay, he's got an oracle against the Philistines. And you're like, yeah, I'm glad he's going to wipe those ancient enemies off the map. 
Then he has Moab. Then he has Damascus. And then he has Egypt, that washed up superpower. And then he has Babylon again. And you're like, all right, a double whammy against Babylon. We're happy about that. And then he talks about Edom and they certainly deserve it. The Edomites certainly deserve it. And then Arabia, those heathens. And so as you're listening to these, as these oracles go through, you're kind of applauding all of this. What you don't realize is these are the nations around you and you're the bullseye. You're next. But they didn't see that. You see, they didn't see their own sin. They didn't see their own trouble. And here God is, is showing them all the wickedness around them and they're probably applauding it going, yeah, we agree, they're wicked, get them. And they don't see their own wickedness. And then they get to this, to the bullseye. And the bullseye is squarely painted right now on Jerusalem and on Judah. And he calls Jerusalem the valley of vision. Why the valley of vision? You know, that's only used twice in all of scripture. And both are in this chapter. That's the only time it's used. Why would you call Jerusalem the valley of vision? Well, is it in a valley? Well, you would say yes and no. You would say it's on a hill. It's on Mount Zion. Is that really a valley? But if you look geographically around there, you would say there are higher mountains around it. So yes, in, in a sense, it's in a valley if you're on the higher mountains. In fact, if you remember, the Mount of Olives, is, it towers over it. And on Jesus, as he's coming down the Mount of Olives, he sees Jerusalem laid out before him and he, and he stops and he weeps over Jerusalem. So in a sense, Jerusalem's in a valley. But why a valley of vision? Because that's where God was in the temple. That's where the prophets went. They went to Jerusalem. The people in Jerusalem had the word of God. They should have known the people in Jerusalem should have been the smartest about what's going on in the world and knowing the whys because they had the very word of God. They had the prophets. They had the temple. It was all right there. And in this valley of vision, kind of this valley motif, and uh, it kind of gives you the sense that they should not be looking out to the nations. You can't. You only see mountains. You should be looking up to God for your answers. But instead of looking up to God for answers, they were looking out to the nations for answers and for salvation. The Valley of Vision, that's Jerusalem. By the way, the same is true for us today. When we hear the word of God preached, when we read, study, memorize, and meditate on it, we're accountable. Really like no people in history, in the history of the world, we have greater access not only to his holy word, but to preaching, to resources, and to the liberties and freedoms we have to study his word. We have amazing, amazing access. And we're accountable for those words. But the next words are almost an exasperated declaration. What's the matter with you, he says. Here it says in my translation, what do you mean that you've gone up? What Isaiah is saying, what are you doing? What is this? What's the matter with you? And what's he mean? What's he pointing to? He said, well, you're, you're up celebrating. You're up on your rooftops and you're, you're partying. There's joyous celebration. That shouldn't be true. Now, in the, in the Middle East, 
the, the, top, the rooftop of the house was actually a living space. You know, my time in the military in the 90s, we lived in these villas in Saudi Arabia, and we'd go up onto the roof. It's a place you lived. You could hang your laundry up there to dry. You could cook up there so you're not heating up the house. You could cook up top there. You could lounge in the cool of the evening up there. It was a place to go, a place to be. But now they were up there, and they were celebrating, and they're, they're basically partying up there. And, and Isaiah is saying, what are you doing? Now, what were they celebrating? Honestly, we don't know for sure. There are probably three good options. Some might throw in a fourth, but three good options. One is that they had just finished all these military preparations that Hezekiah had initiated. They knew Assyria was coming. How do they know? Because Assyria was coming. Assyria doesn't just make a beeline for Jerusalem. They start taking out other towns and cities. They're wreaking havoc across the land. And so they know they're coming, and so they have finished these, their, their preparations, and they may finally think, well, we're secure. We've done it. We're ready. We can handle the onslaught. A second thought might be that this is a celebration that occurs after they hear that Hezekiah tried to pay him off. Maybe they thought, well, here comes Assyria. The king's going to pay him. War averted. That's the second option. The third option may be that they're up there and they've seen what the Lord has done by killing the 185,000 and they're rejoicing over that. I think it's the first option. I think that they're celebrating because they had just finished their war preparations. And there's some other things in the text here that kind of lead me to that conclusion. And so here they are celebrating because they had finished. But what else, what else had happened? Well, we look at the text. And he says, you're slain or not slain with the sword or dead in battle. And he tells us what else has happened. He said, your leaders have fled together. And without the bow, they were captured. All of you who were found were captured and they've been led, uh, uh, you know, though they had fled far away. So what had happened is people were trying to escape. And as they're trying to run away from this, they're being captured and, and killed. So they're not dying in battle. They're dying in, in fleeing. They're being caught. And it says here, the, the leaders fled together. The New Texas translation says, they skedaddled. They're getting out of town. They see trouble coming. They're putting their money in Swiss bank accounts somewhere. They're trying to get out, get away, and avoid all of this because they have the means. But they too are captured. It doesn't matter how far they got. They're still being captured. And so people were being captured and killed. In fact, there's a, 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 they call it the Sennacherib prism. So Sennacherib was the king of Assyria during this attack, this siege. And of course, he liked to record all of his great deeds. He actually liked to record great deeds of other people and kind of count them for his own. So he, he was good about that too. But he's recording these great deeds. And what he says about this campaign at this time into Judah, he says that he conquered 46 cities that were captured, and more than 200,000 Hebrews, or, 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 um, Hebrews were captured and taken into captivity. He doesn't tell us how many he killed. So 46 cities gone, 200,000 people in captivity, and you're partying. Our leaders who were supposed to be here leading fled, and you're partying. Do you see Isaiah's 
thought process in this and what he hates about this. So instead, he weeps bitterly. He says, I can't rejoice. He said, there's great suffering out there. And it's all described later on. And he knew also that future judgment was coming, far worse than what they were currently experiencing. So Assyria took the money, but they didn't take the bait, and they were going to press the attack. They probably want to get rid of Hezekiah, put someone else in there of it. And so verses 5 through 8 describe the panic and the pandemonium that is going on. Mass confusion. Here are the Assyrian army. They're outside the gates. And the people who weren't able to get inside, they're being slaughtered on the hills, and you can hear them crying out. You can hear them dying in battle outside of the gates. Assyria is crushing the walls. And you can hear this in it. And the battle was beginning. Mercenaries are being used. Dying men are screaming as the attack begins on Jerusalem. It says that Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen and Kira uncovered the shield. The choicest valleys were full of chariots. Here's the war. Here it is. And still they trusted their own preparations. Still they were looking at that. And that's what it says in verses 8 through 11. And that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest. In other words, you had built up a stockpile of weapons. You're trusting in those. You've got a bunch of arrows and spears and bows and whatever else you need. And you're trusting in your weapons. And then it says here, and and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. So you collected the waters of the lowing pool and you counted the houses in Jerusalem and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. So you saw the breaches in the wall and you tore down houses to get stones to, to fortify the wall. So you're trusting in your weapons and you're trusting in your wall. And yet they also made a reservoir between the two walls for water so that they wouldn't run out of water during the siege. They're trusting in their weapons, they're trusting in the walls, and they're trusting in their water supply. Who are they not trusting? They're not trusting Yahweh, the one they should be trusting. That's who they failed, and verse 11 tells us that. But you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. They didn't look to God. They didn't look to Yahweh. They were trusting their own preparations. They were trusting themselves in this. And then here's what what God says in verse 12. And this is, is Isaiah is telling him, this is how you should have responded. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep eating meat and drinking wine, saying, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. What does God expect when this happens? God expected them to know the scriptures. God expected them to know Deuteronomy 28, blessings and curses. You see, one of the main tools that God uses when you're disobedient and he describes it is foreign invasion. So when you see the Assyrians lining up against you, you should be thinking, we're in disobedience. We're not doing, we need to be repenting of something. That's why God describes it. Should be weeping and mourning, 
baldness, wearing sackcloth. You should be fasting. You should be praying. You should be crying out to God. You should be pleading for God. You should be asking for forgiveness. And they didn't. They didn't see their own sin. They didn't see that they were the problem, that this was judgment of God coming down on them. I mean, Jonah, we see Jonah probably expected this when he went through Nineveh. He said, hey, I'm going through Nineveh. I'm going to tell him that God's about ready to crush him. Then what did Jonah do? He went up to the hillside outside of Nineveh so he could look down on the city. And what's he waiting for? Most likely he's waiting for a foreign invasion because that's how God punishes people, by foreign invaders. So he's waiting to watch because he wants to see Nineveh destroyed. God does, by the way, give him a little picture of an attack. And that's when the worm attacked the vine that was providing shade and coolness for him uh, because he was not uh, of the same attitude that God had towards uh, saving people. But when you see the Assyrian army outside the gates, you should be thinking we're under God's judgment. But what were they doing? There was joy and gladness. They had the attitude, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. They were turning to anybody but Yahweh. Maybe they were mockingly offering sacrifices and eating that meat. Not with a uh, proper attitude of seeking God in his favor, but really only putting lipstick on a pig, saying we're offering the sacrifices, we're going through the motions, and it meant nothing. The hearts of the people were not inclined to repentance. That's what God wanted. So through the prophet in verse 14, God spoke his judgment. Since you won't repent of your sins, you'll bear your own iniquity. Yahweh will not atone for your sins. That's an ominous verse. But it sounds a little less scary because we think it refers to an entire nation. And you're thinking, oh, if it's an entire nation, I could be the exception to that rule. I'm the individual who's not covered by that. Yet keeping in mind the words atoned for you, God must act on our behalf. God must do something. This points to an atonement of some sort that God is going to deal with sin. Nevertheless, the warning was clear. Sin demands payment. The good news is that God has made a way for that sin to be paid and namely through Jesus Christ. But we only access that salvation by the means that God has determined, not us. Have you made your own preparations for salvation that are not in line with God's? Perhaps you compare yourself to others and you think you measure up greater than most or you're a good person. Either way, one way or another, we're going to pay for our sins, either through Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, or we will pay him ourselves, and we do not want that. But now the text moves and it shifts in verse 15. And we're going to take a look at this section, and, and we're introduced to a guy named Shebna. And Shebna is kind of the, well, it says the steward of the royal house. And so Shebna gives us a, a, a personal example of the sinfulness of, of Jerusalem. So he was a steward of the royal household. He was something like a, somewhat like a prime minister. He controlled who had access to the king. So he was the gatekeeper to the king and the chief executor, or executor, I should say, of the king's wishes. 
So if the king wanted something done, Shebna should help carry that out. And what's he doing at this time? So you, you think about it. You've got, at this moment, the Assyrians are bearing down on you. What should the prime minister be doing? He should probably be neck deep in preparations and, and leading the nation spiritually like his king in repentance and pleading. That's what he should have been doing. But what was he doing? He was creating for himself a grand tomb, carving it out high on the rocks so that when he died, people would look and see this grand tomb, this grand gravesite, and they would say, that must have been a great man to be buried such a way like this. That's what Shebna was doing. He had, he had ignored what he was supposed to be doing. He wasn't doing his duty he was making it all about himself. And that's why verse 16 begins again. And it, it basically is asking the question here, what are you doing? Who gave you permission to do this? The city's under attack and yet you're worried about your legacy. That's it. So God said, you want to know what your legacy is? He says, basically, I'm going to roll you up and I'm going to punch you to the other side of nowhere. You're going to be out of here. It says, you, you want... You want to ride around in grand chariots and be recognized as glorious and honored? I'll pull you out of that chariot and I'll toss you so far you're never coming back. That was God's response. And Shebna is a picture of Judah and Jerusalem, not concerned with God's glory, only his own. He was not a servant to the king, the people, or Yahweh, a servant only to himself. So what happens in verse 20, he's going to be replaced. It says, in that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. In other words, I'm taking this away from you and I'm giving it to this guy. And this guy is awesome. It says, he will become a father to Jerusalem. He cares he cares about the people. He cares about what they're doing, how they're surviving. He does things the right way. God gives him authority and he will do it well. He'll do it very well. In fact, he's described as being like a peg in a secure place. He says he will become a throne of glory to his family. No matter what the issue is, great or small, Elakim will remain faithful in, in doing it. This is the kind of leader they had. This is a good man. This is a good guy. This is what you want. And people rely on this guy and they heat more and more. Great responsibility, great duty. Yet a man cannot bear all the weight and the load of a wayward nation. And in verse 25, it tells us that even he will break off and fall. Now, we don't know what happens. We don't know if he just died unexpectedly. We don't know if this was passed on to his children and they didn't follow in his footsteps. But what we know from this is you can't trust a leader like you should trust Yahweh. You see, the people earlier on were trusting in their war preparations, their military preparations. Now they're trusting in a human leader to get them through this time. And Yahweh's saying, those are both wrong. You need to trust in me, he would say. So now we want godly leaders, and we pray for godly leaders. 
God is the one who raises up and tears down everyone who's in authority. But we can't put our trust in those leaders. We pray that they will uphold justice and righteousness. But our only real hope for justice and righteousness is God alone. We don't put our trust in elected politicians or the Supreme Court. We, we can't put our trust even in the whole of government. We trust in God alone. Then we get to the last, our final oracle, chapter 23, the oracle concerning Tyre. And it begins with a lament by other nations that Tyre is destroyed. You see, Tyre was on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. There was a little village on the land, on the coastland, but moreover, if you went about 500 yards out into the sea, there was a very large rock and they built a large city on it and it had a great, no, it had an outstanding harbor. And they had ships, and those ships would go as far away as, as Tarshish in Spain. And they would bring goods from all over the Mediterranean world would come through Tyre. And because of that, Tyre had become an economic juggernaut. They had power. They had economic power. And they had wealth. They had friends because everybody depended on them. They were too big to fail. No one could ever let them fail. No one could let them be conquered because of who they were. But we see that's exactly what happens. And in these first seven verses, it describes kind of the news of the fall of Tyre spreading across the entire Mediterranean. Ships from Tarshish in Spain hear about it when they dock in Cyprus. And the sailors are spreading the news as they go out to sea. Homes and harbors have been destroyed. What are we going to do? Merchants along the coast are commanded to mourn the loss of Tyre. You see, that's your supply chain. If Tyre's gone, how are you going to get your goods to market? You're not. Egypt hears and Egypt mourns. Why? Their grains were, were transported on these, these ships out of Tyre. And now that supply chain is broken. You see, Tyre thought they were too big to fail. And yet that's exactly what happened. And everybody's trying to, to come to grips with it. They're trying to figure out what had happened. The Hebrew audience needed to hear these things and consider these things and apply them to themselves. But like today, the pundits of the day speculated as to what happened. They called in their so-called experts to explain it to all, everybody but remember, that's the job of the prophet, not the talking heads. They may have been asking, was this some sort of stupid military blunder on Tyre's part? Did the king of Tyre commit a tactical error? Or were the Assyrians just so militarily brilliant that Tyre stood no chance? How did a proud, wealthy Tyre seemingly become destitute overnight? Because that's what happened. And Isaiah provides the answer beginning in verse 8. And the answer is Yahweh did it. It says, Who had purposed this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes and whose traders were the honored earth? Who did it? Verse 9, The Lord of hosts has purposed it to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all who honored, all the honored of the earth. You see, Isaiah 
had been saying since chapter two, that God's theological plan is to profane and defile the pride of mankind that brings any glory to people. You see, God alone is to be glorified. So anything that diverts glory from God to man has to be destroyed. So listen up, people of Jerusalem. This principle applies to everybody, not just other nations. Anyone who trusts in their own abilities rather than God, or in people in high places rather than God, or in their own wealth rather than God, will be brought down. There's no exception. Pride and self-sufficiency can spare can share no space with Yahweh. It doesn't matter how wealthy, how powerful, or even how distant like Tarshish was, you're defenseless against Yahweh. It doesn't matter how many guns, bombs, or even nukes that you have, you're defenseless against Yahweh. And he would say, look what happened to Babylon. Even they were defeated. So go ahead and mourn, for Tyre is defeated. And then we have a surprising twist in verse 15. It says, in that day, Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years. Like the days of, of one king. And at the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the prostitute. And so there's this song that is given and it kind of pictures a harlot who has lost her youth and beauty and men are no longer coming to her door seeking her. So she is taking instruments and going into the streets and singing and trying to attract her prey that way. Now, it's not calling Tyre a harlot. It is simply saying, this is kind of the sad state of Tyre. All the glory that had where people wanted to come to Tyre, they wanted to do business at Tyre, they wanted to use harbors, they wanted to use their ships, that's gone. And Tyre's out there trying to put themselves out, saying, hey, come do business here, but nobody's doing it. And that'll last for 70 years, it says. But at the end of 70 years, verse 17, the Lord will visit Tyre and she will return uh, to her wages and, and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. Now again, he's not calling Tyre a harlot. What he's saying is, as a harlot who had her beauty and youth restored so that she is, has people coming to her, so it will be with Tyre. That city will, will be rejuvenated. Again, its harbors will be open. Ships will come. Goods and services or goods will come from around the Mediterranean. They will become the hub that they once were. But this is really where the twist is. Verse um, 18 her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. It will not be stored or hoarded, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before the Lord. It's looking to that day. It's looking to that, that kingdom day when people are going up to Jerusalem where Christ is reigning on the throne. It's looking forward to that day. And if you're wondering, where am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? Tyre will provide it. That's what they'll be doing. They're going to be honoring and worshiping the Lord. This is Tyre. This is the nation that was so wealthy, thought that they didn't need anybody else. And now they too will worship the Lord. And you see, this is a warning for, for Jerusalem, for the, for the Hebrews, for Judah. You see, that day is coming. God's plans 
are, are not done. You, you're the valley of vision. You should know these things. You should know that that kingdom is going to happen. The king will sit on his throne. That throne will be in Jerusalem. And people from all the nations will come to him. That's what scripture says. You should know that. And so this is a message to Judah. The promises of God are sure. The kingdom is coming. That's where your focus should be. So how do these ancient oracles apply to our lives? What do we do with this? What can we learn from Isaiah, from this prophecy? Well, number one, I take it from the name, the Valley of Vision. We have greater accountability because we have the word of God. You see, owning a Bible is not the same as reading, studying, memorizing, and meditating on it. You're responsible for those things, not just keeping a Bible on your shelf at home. We have an incredible gift, and we need to study the Bible. We need to know it. Does the Word of God influence you, or do you use it as a weapon to justify your own beliefs and actions? I think Israel or Judah at this time, was, was looking at scriptures that way. They thought they were in line. They thought that, hey, I can point to things here and go, we're doing fine. Instead of going to the word of God and letting that examine them, they were taking their beliefs and imparting it onto scripture. And finally, do you submit to the command to not forsake the assembly and sit under the preaching of your church. There was a, a very godly and pious Puritan years ago, centuries ago, and he was asked this question. He said, if, if you could only have one hour out of an entire week to devote to God, one hour out of an entire week, what would you do with that hour? I wonder, if, would, would that be in, in, in prayer and meditation or would that be in study of God's word? And you know what his answer was? I would sit under the the preaching of a godly pastor. That is the best use of his time, he said. We should not forsake the assembly and hearing the word of God preached. Uh, this is a blessing that we have and we must avail ourselves of it. Number two, you've got to evaluate who or what we put our trust in. Do you trust in your own abilities and preparations? You think you're good enough that you'll always bounce back? Perhaps you have the right education, you've got the degree, or you have the experience, you don't have to worry about it. Maybe you've prepared a little nest egg for yourself for times of trouble. Are you trusting in yourself, or are you trusting in God? Do you trust in leaders to save you? Do you hope in elections and Supreme Court decisions? Or are the news pundits your prophets who tell you how to interpret the day's events? Where do you put your trust? And do you trust in wealth and position? You know, I've thought, I said, Lord, you know, don't want to be greedy, but if I was just a single digit billionaire, you know, I'd be able to weather anything that came my way. God, you could set me up, we'd be good. Uh, you know, I could help take care of others, it'd be, it'd be all good. Well, what am I trusting in? Wealth, not God. God doesn't need billions to help me, to rescue me. And finally, we 
We need to have confidence the Lord Jesus is returning to set up his kingdom. We saw this in the oracle uh, for Egypt. Both Egypt and Assyria will worship Yahweh in the kingdom. Isn't that amazing? Egypt and Assyria are going to worship Yahweh. In fact, it says there'll be a new massive superhighway just so people can go back and forth to worship together. Think about that. And now we look and see, well, now this city of Tyre is going to be feeding and clothing those who are, are in Jerusalem, who, people who are going there to visit the reigning Christ on his throne. Can you imagine that? This proud, boastful nation will one day exist just to serve the king of kings and his followers. And once again, we're assured of God's sovereignty over all the nations. We are free to serve and worship without fear or compromise because of who God is. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for your word and the marvelous truths we beheld. Help us to prepare for days of trial. Teach us to trust you alone and forgive us when we put our trust in might or money. We want to repent of that foolishness and we want to look only to you. Clothe, clothe us in all humility towards you and towards one another. We desire your glory alone. We pray all of this through the Son and by the Spirit.